Okay, you ready, AP? Ready when you are. Let's lay this baby down. Lofty, you on the guitar, mate. You're right, Scott. Yep, standing by. Bertie, you on the bass? Yep, ready to go. All right, here we go then. One, two, three, four. Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting the harm. Before we never saw the hand, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Flatten the heels. The coffee might get them, but the Lord never will. We're casting away the only way they know how. With a little more mojo than the Lord will allow. And welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. So, what have you gotten yourself into by hitting the download button for this little program? <laughs> all well, lots of trouble. All we do is we find interesting people from all walks of life, people who we reckon have got their mojo working in some aspect of their world, in or out of work. We do our best to extract their best to give it to you to help you get your mojo working and or allow you to help somebody else their mojo working. Across the panel in the studio, Chief Engineer Robo, welcome to this week's show, mate. Thanks, mate. And while I've got the opportunity, I'd just like to give a quick shout out to a couple of uh, the boys that I coach who turned up to a charity match that I played in on Friday night for the farmers. A couple of the boys from the team turned up and made a couple of great donations to help out our farmers who are struggling with the drought at the moment, as you are well aware. So uh, kudos to them. It's the worst drought in a century. So mm. as long as records have been kept in our great land, mm. this is the worst drought on record and it is bad now. It is only going to get worse as we get into summer. But also our commiserations to people in Greece where there are amazing yeah, fires, absolutely. people in California and across America with the wildfires, which are insane. Mm-hmm. And a proper shout out to the hotshots over there trying to keep people and property Safe. So, um, man, as Tate Fletcher once said on our little program, the world's on fire. <laughs> nice. Before we start, some nice feedback came in this week from iTunes. Mm. Uh, I got one from Ford SJM who said, I love Monday, as that's when I can listen to the next offering from Gary and Robbo. They have an eclectic list of people they interview, but there's always something of value. Keep up the good work. And Lawrence said, awesome content. Interesting, value-adding special speakers and champions behind the wheel. So the reason I read that out is that gets our mojo working. And if you'd like to show your gratitude to what we're doing and or the time our guests put into the show, because none of us are getting anything out of it except the opportunity to be of service to you, the listener. No advertisers, no sponsors, sadly. Uh, We do the whole thing for free. But you can help and you can fund this little show by simply leaving a review one line or send us a message through the socials or get in touch in whatever way. It literally will take you less than a minute, but it means the world to us. And that being said, I think our seatbelts are ready to go. We should uh, hit the road. The Mojo Radio Show. This week's guest is Yvette Cordy. Yvette is curious. So much so... That, that is the name of Yvette's book, Cultivating Curiosity. Yvette is known as an adventurous 
problem finder and helps businesses of all different styles and sizes, every category you could think of in retail, FMCG, property, government, education, banking, finance. Yvette goes in and helps them unlock innovations to solve problems for themselves and or their customers. Yvette's also a registered psychologist and has a thorough understanding of customer behaviours. So I think this is going to be a fascinating conversation. We're very glad to have Yvette on the line. Yvette, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you for having me. I've got to say, you've improved the look of the place a thousand percent before we even get going. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting here staring at Gary across the bench for the last hour. We didn't didn't set the bar very high, mate. So, um, you know... (laughs) Yvette, when people meet you and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? I'm a problem solver for organisations using curiosity and creativity. Uh, And curiosity is really immersing myself in the lives of stakeholders and their customers to understand what matters to them. And creativity, I use creativity to solve those problems um, using different creative methods. And what form does that take? Is that a, a, a workshop thing? Is that a going out and doing sort of private research or one-to-one? How does that look? Yeah, so I work with clients in a couple of different ways. So sometimes they'll come to me and say, I've got a problem to solve. Can you help us solve it? And so I might lead that from start to finish where, um, and they'll be involved the whole way through, but we'll go and immerse ourselves in the lives of their customers and, and, and not just their current customers, but their potential customers. So we'll go into their homes, we'll go shopping with them, we'll, we'll follow them around to understand what's going on for them and what problems they've got to solve. Um, we'll take, once we've kind of looked at all of that um, insight, we'll work out what is the biggest problem, what's their most valuable problem to solve, and then we'll take that into ideation. So look at creative ways in which we can solve those problems and then put an action plan in place. So why have you been, why are you curious about curiosity? I think for a couple of things. Firstly, um, curiosity has taken me all around the world. So I've, for the last 20 years, been working for some of the world's biggest brands, really doing deep curiosity work. Um, My studies led me, and, and I guess my curiosity led me to be a psychologist and I've always been curious about people. So I've always wanted to understand why they do things. Why do people do what they do or why do, is there a disconnect between, you know, when, why people say something but do something different? And, and so a lot of my work has been really been about understanding how to do that. You've travelled a fair bit doing this because I know you've been to a, you've said you've been to a trailer park in Florida, a village in India, apartments in Madrid, all different places to meet people and do research. Mm. When you say your curiosity has taken you there, what's the difference between research and curiosity? Um, well, I think there's there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of similar, but similar kind of attributes. But curiosity is when your eyes are truly wide open. So you can go through the motions of doing research, but if you're not curious and you don't have your eyes wide open, you'll miss something. You'll miss an insight. So curiosity, so research is one tool to be curious, but it's not the only thing to think about. Give me an example of somewhere where you've been where you could say this is what research would do, this is what curiosity found. Um, I think a lot of research happens in the focus group room. So um, one of the challenges of of a, a research method, I guess, that's used a lot is you know, people sit around a table and they tell you what they do. So, for example, I want to drink more water. Um, I'm going to drink more water. I plan to drink more water. And people behind the glass are watching people sit around a table saying, yeah, look, they're going to drink more water. Let's, let's you know, sell them more water. Um, but there's often a disconnect between um, what people say and what they do. And so curiosity would be not taking that on face value. Curiosity would be looking for, you know, going beyond what you're observing behind the glass and looking for other data points, if you like, or other methods to see what else is going on that you can that can give you clues to your problem. And, and yeah, so I guess that's that's an example of where research and curiosity are two different things. So in the book, in your book, 
cultivating curiosity, Seth Godin said, who's probably one of the great marketing writers of our time, he said that creativity is a competitive advantage. Do you think we value it as such? Um, I don't think we value curiosity as much as we should, no. I I think, you know, and I know I often get responses from people saying, we don't have time to be curious. Our manager doesn't want us to be curious. In early on in my career, I had people come to me all the time saying, you know, managers saying, come to me with a, come, don't come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution. Um, and, and so, you know, we've been told just to jump to solutions. We've been told not to be curious. Why is it so hard to find as a trait in leaders? Because we're rewarded for short-term results. So organisations are focused on hitting their numbers, hitting, hitting their quarterly targets, which are all linked to their bonuses. So it's all attached to KPIs. So we jump, you know, it's like, quick, we've got to hit our numbers. Let's get a solution. Hurry up. Let's just go to it. So we, we miss a really valuable part of the process, which is we first need to start, we need to problem find before we problem solve. And that's driven by short-termism within organisations. I like that a lot. Now, say... There's somebody listening to the show and they are a leader in their own life, in their footy club, in their PNC or in their business. And they go, well, I'm curious. Absolutely. I'm curious. And it's a bit like when you talk to people who are not well and overweight and you say, how is your eating pattern? You go, I eat pretty well, but the pretty is the part. That's the ugly bit. People probably go, I'm curious, but in actual fact, they're a long way from it. How would a leader know in your mind that they are curious? So I've identified, I guess, six mindsets for curiosity. Um, and, and in order for us to truly be curious, ideally we're strong on each of those, I guess, attributes or mindsets. Um, and that's the rebel, the Zen master, the novice, the sleuth, the interrogator and the playmaker. Um, and I've got some really simple questions for people to answer and, and obviously they need to do that very honestly but those kind of six mindsets really give people a picture of, of how curious they really are. Um, uh, and then, you know, underneath that, you know, I can start to unpack what's going on for them. How are they, um, you know, what are their current behaviours within their organisation and are they truly open to, to being curious and to give people permission to being curious within their organisation. With those questions, Yvette, are people happy to sort of unpack it, look at themselves, their authentic self? I think, I think there's totally um, fear for people. Uh, you know, people are scared to, 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 you know, one of the key mo- mindsets that I think leaders struggle with is the novice. Um, and... Because in an organisation and as you get more senior, you're expected to be the expert. You're, you're, you're expected to have all the answers. And when you don't, that's where fear comes in because that's your job. You've been told that you must have all those answers. So, I, you know, I think absolutely not. People aren't prepared to necessarily sit there and, and say that, you know, lay out their vulnerabilities in front of everyone else. But in order for us to innovate, in order for us to be better problem finders and to be more curious, there needs to we need to be first be open, and there needs to be a level of vulnerability that goes with that to be to be able to to get the most out of our people and out of our innovation efforts. So if you if you look at the the book and the different categories of Zen Master and the novice and so on, if you pick out one that you think is the most prevalent the, or your favourite. I'm just after an example because I'm trying to give give us all a, a handle on what's it like to be curious. Like I understand going through it and, and qualifying who we are and whether we're being true to ourselves, put that aside for a sec. But what's a day in the life of a truly curious person look like? Like what would I be doing how would I be conducting my day? How would my time be allocated? So if you pick somebody that fits into one of those categories and you can go as a case study, they are a truly curious person. What's that day look like? Um, well, I mean, I, I probably would pick the novice as a, as a starting point because I think that it's, you know, it's, it's really about um, starting 
from scratch. So let's imagine you're the you're the CEO and you walk into your organisation for the day and instead of being in an expert mindset, you're suddenly the novice. Well, you're going to pretend you know you know nothing. You're going to walk into a room and instead of being the first person who speaks, you're going to let other people speak speak first. You're going to listen to them carefully. And then you're going to ask, can I ask you a silly question? Can I ask you a dumb question? As they're kind of talking about a problem that they've got to solve, you might be asking them um, questions that you think you probably should know the answer to and something that you're pretty, you think you're pretty familiar with, but you're instead going to question it. You're going to ask questions around, you know, and look at the problem differently. And every, and I guess every meeting you walk into for the rest of the day, it, you've very much got that mindset. So as soon as somebody puts up an idea, hey, I think we should do this, instead of judging and saying, no, nah, it's not going to work because of this, you're going to say, okay, let's hear that out. What are your thoughts around that? Tell me more about that. Um, it, it, instead of, uh, instead of um, answering questions, you're going to ask questions. And part of and I think one of the hardest things leaders struggle with with, the, with that novice mindset is that humility, is, you know, we all, have, we all have egos and we want to be the smartest person in the room and we want to look like the smartest person in the room. Not everyone does, but it happens a lot as we get more senior. Part of that is that humility, that vulnerability to say, hey, I don't have all the answers. I'm looking to you guys to help me. Um, and another part of it is about being not being so guarded you know it's it's being more open to to new thinking and, and and possibilities if we continue on that vein and it's something you mentioned earlier in the show you talked about becoming a problem finder and mm. in the book you say it's about becoming a problem finder not a problem solver yet yeah when you read that in the book that seems very contrary to how most people have been taught to think is that scary for some yeah and because people, again, we're so focused on the short term, so people are wanting to jump to solutions. Um, in a, in a, and, and in a, there was a Harvard Business Review article in 2017 and they interviewed 106 C-suite executives across 17 countries and 85% of those executives agreed that they were poor at problem diagnosis. And they also agreed that that flaw carried significant cost. So the result of them being so short-term focused and jumping to solutions is they're wasting time, money and resources because they're often solving the wrong problem. Have you, have you thought about how, how does someone know they've got the right problem? Because I, I think this is a really interesting point for a lot of us to consider, and not just in the workplace, but in our personal lives or our wellness or our relationships. I mean, it, it applies to everything, but you call it problem diagnosis. How do we, how do we improve our, our own problem diagnosis skills? Yeah. And I, well, it, it starts with, we often start with a problem. And so somebody presents with a problem and they say, right, let's, let's solve it. So first thing is to look at the problem from lots of different angles and, and I guess there's two layers to this. So from an, from a, from an organisational perspective, we often have a business problem and, and, and leaders are often pretty good at talking about their business problems. So it might be something like we've got declining revenue or declining margins. But, but we also, there's another side to that, which is, well, you know, we're here to sort of serve our customers. So what are our customer problems? And, and so it's... Ex- in a divergent way, so we need to look at what are all of the different types of problems, so organisational problems as well as customer problems. And and so sometimes part of the problem is that we haven't actually articulated our problems very well. So um, it's it's looking at, at, at all of those problems and then it's saying, well, what's our most valuable problem? And that becomes really a prioritisation exercise to to say out of all these problems, and, and to me the sweet spot lies between a customer problem and a business problem because if, if we're trying to um, 
we need to make money as an organisation, but we want to reduce friction and tension in a customer's life. And so if we can solve both of those things at the same time, then that becomes our ideal, the ideal place. And so that, you know, to work what, what that is out is to say, well, what's our key criteria? How do we, how do we think about this? How do we work out, you know, um, which of these are causing the most friction in a customer's life and which of these are going to, you know, produce the most desirable outcomes for us as an organisation. Just on that, Yvette, there are some industries where the word insight has become very vanilla. I mean, it's wallpaper and it's overused. So anything anybody thinks is suddenly an insight. And you've said that cultivating curiosity is a real drive to unearth insights What's a real insight for you? Because a lot of people use that term, but rarely do you find a true insight that is profound. How do you how do you qualify that? How do you know you've found a true insight? Yeah, great question. So um, often people, you know, in the, I guess the curiosity stage where you're out gathering lots of facts and observations, um, you will come across, you know, it's, you might come back with 200 different sort of um, uh, observations out in the field. And, you know, what, what you need to do is you need to start to kind of piece that together. And I actually, the way that I sort of talk about an insight and the way I construct an insight um, is got three kind of key components to it. So, to me, a good insight inspires a solution. So when you read an insight, you go, ah, oh, yep, I get it. So, um, and the, the first part to an insight is, a, is really a fact. It's some sort of observation about how people behave or what they do. Um, the second part of an insight is really a need. So it needs to, you know, it, it's an understanding of what sits behind that observation. And we have lots of different needs. They're, they're sometimes functional they could be social, they could be emotional needs. And then finally, there's some sort of tension or friction in someone's life. So it's a problem. It's a, it's, it's, it's a problem that needs solving. And when you sort of put the, the two together, that's where, uh, sorry, the three parts together, that's where you start to see an obvious solution to fit to that. So you might have a thousand kind of observations and insights from, from being out um, trying to understand your customer's world, but, but you might only end up with, 10 key insights that really explain all of that behaviour. Something I was curious about in the book, uh, and it's funny because when we, as a show, we're five seasons in and as a, as a topic, if we do anything around grit, uh, grit, resilience, discipline, mental toughness, it's always our most popular show. And in the book and in some of the interviews I've heard you do, you draw, you draw a, 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 an association between discipline and curiosity, in, in your sort of way of thinking, they are bedfellows. How, how are discipline and curiosity linked? The way I guess I talk about it is that curiosity is not a one-off activity. So for us to be curious and to cultivate our curiosity, we need to have some, some discipline around that. So um, we first need to be open to being more curious, but, but the discipline piece is about that that daily practice. So, and, and for me, I guess I use the metaphor of once upon a time I was an athlete and I used to, to train, you know, um, six days a week and there was a huge amount of discipline that went into that. But, but no training session was ever the same. And, and that's very important for curiosity because otherwise we ter- it becomes a habit. It's not, curi- it's not about curiosity. But to cultivate our curiosity, it's about scheduling curious moments into our daily lives. It's, you know, constantly trying to do something new for the first time. It's pushing ourselves out of our daily routines, but making time for it, creating space for it, creating, you know, putting it in your schedule um, so that you can work on that on being more curious. That's good, isn't it? Curious moments. Give me the example of someone you've worked with or someone you know who has systematised curious moments. Um, yeah, actually, a, a number of people I've come across now have been actually building it into their schedules. So um, in the book, I talk about one of the examples. Um, 
where a leader used to say to his team, you've got eight hours in a day, I want you to spend seven and a half hours of that day doing your work and I want you to, I want you to allocate 30 minutes of your day to be curious, to go around the office and talk to people and ask people questions, to learn something new. So it's about creating, um, you know, scheduling curious moments into your diary. Um, somebody else I came across, um, they they colour code their diary. So they've got, you know, they're a senior executive, they've got their, their diary is jam-packed all day, but they colour code it. So when it's orange, for example, that's a that's a colour cue for them to be curious. So when they see that in their diary, you know, like the example I gave before with the novice, they're walking into their meetings thinking about I'm going to be more curious today. And so they're walking into those their day with that with that curious mindset. Gary, I'm surprised you didn't know about that. This is old news for us because back in the day when we worked in radio at Triple M, you and I were always curious whether there's any beer in the tap downstairs at Billy the Pigs. We were always down there making sure that that was the case. I thought you were going to say our diaries were always covered in black because we were all about back in black. <laughs> Well, there's that too. And that was the cue to pay more ACDC. I thought that's where you were going with it. I mean, maybe we're spending too much time together. Possibly. <laughs> I, I, see, I think that's gold. And the reason I not – what you said, Robert, that was rubbish. But I think what you had said was really gold because I heard a guy, uh, Giovanni, who is a guest on the show, who talked about having meditation moments through your day. And what scares most people is you've got to sit down for 20 minutes or 40 minutes or, as he does, two hours a day to meditate. And he said you can do it in little two-minute increments. And he said you just set your Fitbit or your watch or something for an alarm to go off every hour or two hours and then you just remove yourself from the conversation and you have these little two-minute – and I thought that's a really – like we could do that. Like that's an actionable thing we could do and build into our day because he said it doesn't have to be one sitting. You can do it through a number of sittings through the day, but you're slowing yourself down. The colour coding is a version of that. I think that's really clever. Yeah, I think it's a really, I think it's a really nice way of building that into everyday practice. And, you know, like you said, there could be, you're walking to your next meeting and you know, notice something you've never noticed before. You walk that same path every single day, but look out for something you've never noticed before. There's lots of different simple ways you can you can create those curious moments. So I'm just going to get Robbo to put the indicator. I'm going to take an off-ramp here. It's on the same road, but an off-ramp. How do we cultivate that in our children? So we've just talked about You've got a person in a working environment, either in an office or working from home in a back room, and they can colour code. And I like the idea because it's a visual representation of things they can execute. How How do we teach our children to be princes or princesses of possibility? How do we coach them through that? How do we bring curiosity into their world when we live in a world of distraction and lack of attention? Is there a a method or means you've seen that we can introduce to our children? Um, I haven't extended my work yet in, into um, with children yet. Um, having said that, I have a couple of kids of my own. Um, so, so, so that's... Exhibit this A, is, this, Exhibit this B. Is, this, is, this, is per, <laughs> this is for personal anecdotes. But, I mean, <laughs> one of the things that I refer to in the book is that you know, question asking is at its peak before kids go to school. And, you know, and this sort of plays into the interrogator sort of mindset where we're asking why, why, why. And um, I think the stat is something like between the ages of, of two and five, kids ask on average one to three questions per minute. And that that then declines quite significantly once they go to school. And I timed my, I've got a f- almost five-year-old um, I timed him recently and he asked me 16 questions in, 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 in a minute, and, you know, <laughs> which, which is, is a lot. <laughs> uh, and I think part of, and, you know, we, we get told, um, we get shut down with all the questions when we're, when we're young. And, in fact, my, 
I, you know, my dad used to say to me as a kid, you know, I, I would obviously ask why a lot. And he said to me, because why is a crooked letter of it? And, and that was his way of sort of saying <laughs> enough of the questions. Uh, and so I think from a curiosity point of view, part of it's encouraging that inquiry. Um, I think we can use kids to, to be more curious. If you've ever followed a five-year-old around for the day and see what they look at, and follow what their, their, you know, their line of vision and questions are, it's amazing what they see that you don't see. So um, I think the work that I'm doing has been very much in the organisational space, but it has incredible application um, within children as well. And, and, I, I, and I guess there's, a, there's huge benefits from cultivating curiosity because we know from neuroscience that... It, it lights up the reward centre of our brain when we're curious. So we get this physiological benefit from being curious. So cultivating curiosity, whether it's for kids or for adults, brings wonderful personal benefits. I heard a beautiful story, Yvette, recently on a podcast with uh, Ryan Hawke, who hosts the Learning Leaders podcast, who's a guest on our show. And he was talking with his brother, AJ Hawk, who was a very well-known NFL player for the Green Bay Packers and the Falcons in the States. And they were talking about kids and how we are a reflection of our kids in the mirror. And AJ told this story how his little girl walked up to him one day and said, Dad, if God created everything, who created God? <laughs> he said, my first thought was, what a question. Like, where does that come from in the mind of a four-year-old? And the, the reason I tell the story is because kids seem to be naturally curious and they're very happy being disruptors, but they don't set out to be disruptors. They're just being themselves. But in a world of business, which is rules and protocols and systems and laws to keep us in the status quo, it's kind of, I guess it's hard for a lot of us not to conform how does a truly curious person see disruption in this world of status quo? I think they get excited by disruption. I think they get frustrated by status quo. So some people, I think, who are stuck within a very corporate organisation and if they don't feel that they have the influence to change the culture will often leave and, and go and do their own thing. So... Um, if they, but but equally, you see lots of pockets of teams within organisations who have that vision, have that kind of sense of possibility, and I think cultivate that within their own teams. It might not pervade the whole organisation, but they create these kind of subcultures within different organisations. As a psychologist, just and I'm conscious of the time we've got you for today, Yvette. But as a psychologist, I'm interested in your views on the term "I am." Dot dot dot. And the reason I asked the question is we had a lady called Bronnie Ware on the show a couple of weeks back and she, Bronnie wrote the top five regrets of the dying. And one of the things we talked about was that there was a moment where Bronnie went, I, I am creative, yet her dad went through life and never said that, in which case he never really fulfilled his potential or never really loved what he did because he never recognised the fact that he was creative and he was an incredible musician. Is that really the first step for us in curiosity is to stop down and go, I am curious, to build it as part of our identity? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I guess it ties back to the being open to being curious. So I believe everybody can cultivate their curiosity and I believe the same for creativity as well. And and so com what comes with that is owning that. Um, there's a there's a shadow to that too, though, I think, which is what you were talking about earlier, which is that you can think you're curious and you th can think you know it all, but that can be a bit of a dark side to curiosity because if you truly think you know it all, then you will never learn. And I was at a conference on Thursday, Friday, and I was sitting next to a couple of people and I was listening, eavesdropping into their conversation, and I heard one of them say, I'm not going to go to that session because I, I, I know it all um, and I've seen it all before. And, and if you truly walk into any environment with that mindset, you won't 
you won't learn anything. So yes, I think I am is a is definitely a starting point to say I am curious and I'm I am ready to cultivate my curiosity. But being but I am a novice. <laughs> I don't know it all. Uh, because that that's how I will truly learn. Which ties back to your humility at the start of the show, you talk about the, the value of humility and curiosity. It's the same, they're sort of bedfellows, aren't they? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I started out my, my career working um, for uh, doing interviewing um, sort of IT executives and I remember walking in early days in my career and they're like, so do you know about X, Y and Z? And I said, yeah, 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 I know about X, Y, and Z. And I didn't really know about X, Y, and Z. And I walked, you know, I, 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 I made out that I did. I interviewed them and then I got out and I researched as quickly as I could all of what X, Y, and Z was. But that was a missed opportunity for me. I could have easily sat there and said, no, I don't. Can you tell me more about that? And, and in doing so, I would have learned a hell of a lot more than I did. As an interviewer, is that Two final things before I let you go. But as, as an interviewer, as an interviewer, silence and listening—you've said—can be a tool that we can use positively. Pos- <laughs> silence and listening can be a tool we can use positively for curiosity. Tell me, tell me how that fits in a world that's full of noise and disruption and conversation. Where, where's the value in silence and truly listening to bring out our curiosity? So I love that listen and silent are, is an anagram. So it's the, the same combination of, of letters. But part of, I guess, being curious is creating, you know, we, we show up and we're creating space for new learning. And, and, and I use silence a lot in the work that I do because when you're talking to someone, when you're trying to understand something about them, that silence can suddenly create space for people to share something maybe they've never shared before or can create space for them to truly think about something that that hasn't come to mind. And I think naturally we always want to fill the space in, but, but silence can sometimes really unlock some really valuable insight. I reckon that's gold, Robbo. I reckon that's gold. I was just sitting here listening to that thinking there's <laughs> there's so many stems to that, isn't there? Well, it's funny. As an audio engineer, that's uh, it's, it's, it's the power of a great audio engineer is not being afraid to put in silence. And if you look at the great actors, the great actors use silence as one of their great tools. In fact, Ben Kingsley was on Inside the Actor's Studio and James Lipton, the host, said how important is silence for you. And Ben Kingsley said, stillness and silence are my currency. And when you think about the great actors, Pacino's or Brando's or uh, De Niro's, it's that look in their eye and that pause and that silence that, that just says everything. So I, I actually do think it's gold where silence and listening can give people a chance to sit and think and ponder and be curious. I think that's um, that's really powerful. Just maybe one last thing before we go. If I could take you back before, I think, before you started your working career, it's 1997 and <laughs> you are at the starting line of the Australian 400 metres hurdles championships. With all you've learnt since then, and it's the Australian championships, you're looking down the bend, with all your study you've done, the work you've done around the world, your curiosity, you're now sitting in the stands and you can give yourself one piece of advice before the gun goes. What would you say to yourself? Silence. Silence. I'm thinking... <laughs> I was just making a point. That's all. <laughs> I walked up to that start line that day, and a lot of the inspiration throughout my career has come from my my time as an athlete, and um, you know, the, being the Zen master. I have a, I have a very vivid recollection of that day and that race, and I can I can you know talk through through that in a lot of detail. And I think in that moment, I was the Zen master. I'd blocked everything out, but. 
I think there was a there was a a lack of um, confidence, if you like, to be me and who I truly was, and and I think that that would probably be my my single piece of advice. I think to 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 be authentic and to be confident in the work that I'd done and 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 who I was. It's such an important and profound piece to finish with, Yvette, because the Australian MasterChef, the cooking show, is the biggest cooking show by audience in the world. So the Australian series, this is right, Robert, wasn't it? Because Lofty does the voice for it. Yeah, 186 countries around the world. It's the biggest cooking show in the history of television anywhere yeah. in the world. Yeah. And one of our voiceover guys is the, is the star of the show, Lofty, the big voice of MasterChef. But <laughs> you just don't see him, whether you're there or not. <laughs> but what's interesting, and, and where I relate it back to, I think what you said is really profound, is that every single night when you watch the show, there'll be somebody who will be judged as having a good meal. And what they always say on camera is, that's now given me the confidence to believe that I could be a chef and go on. And you have to keep saying, why... Why do you need somebody else to justify in your own mind that you're okay, you're good? And it goes back to what you were saying because my understanding is you went pretty well in that race, right? I did. Yeah, I won. Exactly. So you won the Australian Championships. It even even somebody with that talent, and I think we all do it, whether it be in podcasting and business or sitting on a PNC or running a Spartan race or whatever. And I think it's a really profound thing that we just got to own it. We just got to have confidence in ourselves and back ourselves and not wait for somebody else to say, gee, you're curious. I, um, and it's funny that in your book, uh, at the front of the book, you actually have a, a recommendation there by Kathy Freeman, Olympic and world 400 meter champ, uh, big fan of the show. Hi, Kathy. Um, and probably one of our greatest athletes of all time, especially in the modern era. So, um, that's a great way to finish the show. Where, where do people find out more about you, Yvette, and track down the book? called Cultivating Curiosity. Yep, you can find me at agentsofspring.com or yvettecordy.com and Yvette is with an E, E-V-E, double um, uh, The book's available at sort of all good bookstores, Dimmicks, um, QBD Books, Readings uh, and also online as well. So, Before we let you go, I'm going to pop you one question that's not on topic of what we're talking about, but from the sounds of things you can sh talk about with some expertise. And it's one that, that Gary's asked a few of our high performance athlete guests in the past. And it's an answer that has always been different, but has always fascinated me. And it's about bringing yourself to the moment, like being in the moment before that race where you're purely focused on what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And we've had, we've heard about the British rowing team who, you know, one of the guys used to put his hand in the water and think it's only water. We've spoken to rugby players who had a little squishy ball and they just run it between their hands and think about what they were going to do. How did you go about that? I used to wear a pair of brand new socks every race, which is oh, really? an odd, oh, really? <laughs> odd thing to do, but that was part of my ritual. So I would um, put on a brand new pair of socks and that was sort of the first sort of ritual to get me into the mind. But I, my visualisation, I used to do a lot of guided visualisations with my racing and I could run a race to the to the second in 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 my mind and I would visualize walking out to the start line a blank slate was kind of my reference to kind of be in that very the present moment and to tune sort of everything out to to be in that in that moment you've got you've got nice clarity over things, Yvette, which I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. And just just a final thought. I saw a quote by a guy called Todd Cashton, who's a clinical psychologist, and he said, in his mind, curiosity is the function that urges us to explore, discover, and grow. With the clarity you've got now having written the book, and obviously when you write the book, you get a lot of feedback from different people and you hear stories and anecdotes. Just to finish this up, what is your definition of curiosity? If, if people take this on board today and say, I am curious, and somebody said, well, how do you describe curious? In a sentence, how do you describe it? I describe it as a drive or a hunger to unearth insight. Gold. 
<laughs> I love it. Um, Yvette, nice. thank you for your time. Thank you for being so willing to share. The nice thing about our show is we get to speak to a wide variety of people on a wide variety of topics, all of which can help people get their mojo working. I think curiosity as a topic is a much underdone topic. And I think we need people like you out there bringing it to our attention, showing us how to do it, giving us usable practical tools to implement this for our own world. And goodness knows, more importantly, even to our children's world to raise them with with kids as as adults with curiosity. And um, so thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. (laughs) (laughs) Mojo Radio Show. So to take us out this week, I'm going to continue on with a bit of Hunter S. Thompson stroke Ralph Steedman. Ralph Steedman, the artist. Now... I found this interview and I'll play it and then I'll give you my thoughts on it. I go straight in with ink, you know, and, and that's it. Uh, I don't believe in, in penciling in first anything. And people say, but don't you make a mistake? Oops. And I said, but there's no such thing as a mistake. A mistake is only an opportunity to do something else. I never went out of my way to invent a style. I find that that's, and I mean invent a style, because people go to you, but how did you arrive at your style? I haven't got a style. I just draw, and it's that way. It's a pen line, and I use wet ink. So before we get your thoughts on it, here's my thoughts. When he says there's no such thing as a mistake, that's pretty much the way we approach this show, isn't it? <laughs> In a way... For five seasons, we've always just created a show that we thought we'd enjoy. So we've never, ever gone out of our way to create a show for an audience. We just go, if we were creating a show that we love doing and we would want to listen to, what would we do? So in a way, I think that line he said is he just goes for it. There's no such thing as mistakes. The reason I'm playing it, number one, because I know you're a Hunter S. Thompson, Ralph Steedman fan, so that's a granted. The other thing that Yvette talked about was curiosity unlocks the opportunity and then creativity finds the solution for that opportunity. I think what hinders our creativity a lot of the time is us worrying about what other people will think or creating something that others will like or doing it in such a way that people will acknowledge us and or approve of our work. But I just think in this little piece, and I'll put the link to the video in the show notes because there is a a wonderful clip on YouTube that shows him creating, but he said there is no style. He just draws. So whatever you're curious about and whatever you're creating, just have a crack at it. Pick up the guitar and play. Don't try and play something to impress others or paint to impress others or find a new business idea. If you think it's a cool idea, have a crack at it and be Ralph Steadman. I think, uh, I reckon it's a really powerful little 30 seconds of video, don't you? I absolutely do. And can I suggest to anyone who hasn't had the pleasure of reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson, <laughs> uh, take the subject matter out of it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an amazing book. But if you, my point was going to be, if you want to see... A fantastic example of an artist and an author working together in an amazing way where the style of the artist just completely matches the style of the author. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas has got to be a classic example, surely. Okay, so this is going to be my my closing song. <laughs> oh, no. I, was, <laughs> I was talking with a guy over the weekend and right. he said, I'm taking my son hmm. to America for a trip, a boy's trip away what should I do? And I said, get to LA, land, get a Lincoln Town car, pimp your way down the 405 and then head east to Las Vegas and time your run to enter Las Vegas just as the sun is going down and all the lights are coming on and, and, and Las Vegas is coming to life and put on this. Bright light said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn So get those stakes up higher 
There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there They're all living the devil may care And I am just a devil with love to spare So Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas How I wish that there were more than 24 hours in the day Even if there were 40 more I wouldn't sleep a minute away Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel A fortune won and lost on every deal All you need is strong heart and a new steel Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas with your neon flashing And your one-armed bandits crashing All those hopes down the drain Viva Las Vegas turning day into nighttime Turning night into daytime If you see it once, you'll never be the same again I'm gonna keep on the run I'm gonna have me some fun It cost me my very last dime If I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember that I had a swing in time I'm gonna give it everything I've got Lady, look, please let the dice stay hot Let me shoot a seven with every shot Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Viva Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.